Welcome to Volume 7 of this Uvula audio presentation of Rip Foster, Rise of the Gray Planet. Chapter 13, Peril at Perihelion. Sergeant Major Koa had made no comment since notifying Rip of the call from Terra Base. Now he asked thoughtfully, Lieutenant, can the Connie launch bolts this close to the sun? Won't the sun's pole suck them right in? Corporal Peterson scoffed. No, Koa. If sun's gravity be that strong, it pull us in too. Not quite, Peterson, Rip corrected. Koa is on the right track. The pull of the sun is pretty strong, but I don't think it's strong enough to capture boats. He had figured the asteroid's orbit to pass as close to the sun as possible while maintaining a margin of safety. He had wanted to use the sun's gravity to pick up speed. His regular star sightings had told him several days before that the sun was dragging them. But Koa had started a train of ideas running through Rip's head. If they could get close enough to the sun so small boats would be unable to break free of its gravity, the Connie wouldn't dare send a landing force. The powerful engines of a cruiser could break loose from Saul's pull, but not the chemical jets of a cruiser's boat. Rip got his instruments and pulled out a special slide rule designed for use in space. He had Koa stand by with stylus and computation board and take down figures as he called them off. He recalculated the safety factor he had used when deciding how close to put the asteroid to the sun, then took quick star sights to determine their exact position. They were within a few miles of perihelion, the point at which they would be closest to Saul. Rip tapped gloved fingers on his helmet absently. If they could blast out of the orbit and drive into the sun, he estimated the result. A few miles per second of extra speed would put them so far within the sun's field of gravity that within an hour or so, small boats would venture into space only at their own peril. He reviewed the equipment. They had tubes of rocket fuel, but the tubes wouldn't give the powerful thrust needed for this job. They had one atomic bomb. One wasn't enough. Not only must they drive toward the sun, they must keep reserve power to blast free again. Oh, if only they had a pair of nuclear charges. He called his planeteers together and outlined the problem. Perhaps one of them would have an idea. But no useful suggestions were forthcoming until little Domenico spoke up. Sir, why don't we make two bombs from one? I wish we could, Rip said. You know how, Domenico? No, Lieutenant. If we had parts, I could put bombs together. I can take them apart, but I don't know how to make two out of one. The Italian planeteer looked accusingly at Rip. I thought maybe you know, sir. Rip grunted. If they had the parts, he could assemble nuclear bombs, too. Part of his physics training had been concerned with fission and its various applications, but no one had taught him how to make two bombs out of one. The theory of nuclear explosions was simple enough. Two or more correctly sized pieces of plutonium or uranium isotope, when brought together, formed what's known as a critical mass, which would fission. The fissioning released energy and produced the explosion. But there was a wide gap between theory and practice. A nuclear bomb was actually pretty complicated. It had to be complicated to keep the pieces of the fissionable material apart until the chemical explosion drove them together fast and hard enough to create a fission explosion. If the pieces weren't brought together rapidly enough, the mass would fission in a slow chain reaction and no explosion would result. Rip was trained in scientific analysis. He tackled the problem logically, 
considering the design of a nuclear bomb and the reason for it. Atomic bombs had to be carried. That meant an outer casing was necessary. Probably the casing had to do a lot with the design. Suppose no casing were required, what would be needed? He took the stylus and computation board from Koa and jotted down the parts required. First, two or more pieces of plutonium large enough to form a critical mass. Second, a neutron source, some material with the type of radioactivity that produced neutrons to start the reaction. Third, some kind of neutron reflector, and fourth, explosive to drive the pieces together. Do they have all those things? He checked them off. Their single 5 KT bomb contained at least enough plutonium for two critical masses. If brought together inside a good neutron reflector, each mass should give about a 2 kiloton explosion. And they did have a good neutron reflector, nuclite. There wasn't anything better for the purpose. What have you got for a neutron source? He asked aloud. He was really asking himself, but he got a quick answer from Koa. Sir, some of the stuff left in the craters from the other explosions give off neutrons. You're right, Rip agreed instantly. A small piece from one of the craters, when combined with half of the neutron source in the bomb, should be enough. As for the explosive, they had exploding heads on their attack rockets. In other words, he had what he needed, except for a method of putting all the pieces together to create a bomb. If only they had a tube of some sort that could withstand the chemical explosion, the one that brought the critical mass together. He told the planeteers what he had been thinking, then asked, Any ideas for a tube? How about a tube from the snapper bolts? Santos agreed. Rip shook his head. No, not strong enough. They're designed to withstand the slow push of rocket fuel, not the fast rap of an explosion. When I say slow, I mean slow burning when compared with explosive. Who has another idea? Kemp, the expert torchman, said, Sir, I can burn you a tube into the asteroid. Rip grabbed the planeteer so hard, they both floated upward. Kemp, that's a great idea, that's it. The details took form in his mind, even as he called orders. Domenico, tear down that bomb. Santos, remove two heads from your rockets and wire them to explode on electrical impulse. Kemp, we'll want the tube just a fraction of an inch wider than a rocket head. Get your torch ready. He took the stylus and began calculating. He talked as he worked, telling the planeteers exactly what they were up against. I'm figuring out where to put the charge so it would do the most good, but my data isn't complete. If our homemade bomb goes off, I don't know exactly how much power it'll give. If it gives us too much, we'll be driven so close to the sun that we're never going to get free of its gravity. Bradshaw, the English planeteer, said mildly, Don't worry, Lieutenant. The quote either way. If it isn't the solar frying pan, it's the Connie's fire. A course of agreement came from the other planeteers. What a crew, Rip thought. What a great gang of space pirates. He finished his calculations and found the exact spot where Kemp would cut. A few feet away from the spot was a thick pyramid of thorium. That would do. They could cut into it horizontally instead of drilling straight down. He pointed to it. Let's have a hole straight in for six feet. And keep it straight, Kemp. Allow enough room for a lining of nuclite. Koa, pull a sheet of nuclite out of the cave and cut it to size. Kemp's torch already was slicing into the metal. Rip asked, Can you weld with that thing, Kemp? Just show me what you want, sir. Good. Rip motions Trudeau. Frenchy, we'll need a strong rod at least eight feet long. The French planeteer hurried off. 
Rip consulted his chronometer. Less than ten minutes had passed since the call from TerraBase. He went over his plan again. It had to work. If it didn't, asteroid and planeteers would end up as subatomic particles in the sun's photosphere because he had calculated his blast to drive the asteroid past the limit of safety. It was the only way he could be sure of putting them beyond danger from Connie landing boats or snapper boats. The Connie would have only one chance to bring his cruiser down on the asteroid. And if he tried that, Rip thought grimly, he would get a surprise. The second nuclear charge would be set, ready to be fired. The Connie cruiser was so big that no matter how it pulled up to the asteroid, some part of it would be close enough to the charge to be blown into space dust. No cruiser could survive an atomic explosion within 500 yards, and the Connie would have to get closer to the nuclear charge than that. Domenico reported that the bomb had been dismantled. Rip went to it and examined the raw plutonium, being careful to keep the pieces widely separated. This particular bomb design used five pieces of plutonium, which were driven together to form a ball. Rip made a quick estimate. If two were enough to form a critical mass, he would use two to blast into the sun and three to blast out again. He would need the extra kick. There was only one trouble. The pieces were wedge-shaped. They would have to be mounted in thorium in order to keep them rigid. Only Kemp could do that. They had no cutting tool but the torch. Santos appeared carrying a rocket head under each arm. They had wires wound around them, ready to be attached to an electrical source. Rip hurried back to where Kemp was at work. The private was using a cutting nozzle that threw an almost invisible flame five feet long. In air, the nozzle wouldn't have worked effectively beyond two feet, but in space, it cut right down to the end of the flame. Kemp had his arm inside the hole and was peering past it as he finished the cut. Done, sir, he said, and adjusted the flame to a spout of red fire. He thrust the torch into the hole and quickly withdrew it as pieces of thorium flew out. A stream of water hosed into the tube would have washed them out the same way. Rip took a block of plutonium from Domenico and handed it to Kemp. Cut a plug and fit this into it. Then cut a second plug for the other piece. They have to match perfectly, and you can't put them together to try out the fit. If you do, we'll have fission right here in the open. Not something you want. Kemp searched and found a piece he had cut in making the tube. It was perfectly round, ideal for the purpose. He sliced off the inner side where it tapered to a cone. Then, working only by eye estimate, cut out a hole in which the wedge of fission material would fit. He wasn't off by a thirty-second of an inch. Skillful application of the torch melted the thorium around the wedge and sealed it tightly. Koa was ready with a sheet of nuclite. Trudeau arrived with a long pole he had made by lashing two crate sticks together. Rip gave directions as they formed a cylinder of nuclide. Kemp spot-welded it and then pushed it into the hole, forming a lining. Nunez found a small piece of material in one of the earlier craters. It would provide some neutrons to start the chain reaction. Rip added it to the front of the plutonium wedge, along with a piece of beryllium from the bomb. Kemp welded it into place. They put the thorium block, which contained the plutonium, into the hole, the plutonium facing outward. The neutron source, the neutron reflector, and one piece of fissionable material were in place. Kemp sliced another round block of thorium out of the nearby crystal and fitted the second wedge of plutonium into it. At first, Rip had worried about the two pieces of plutonium making a good enough contact, but Kemp's skillful hand and precision eye had removed that worry. The torchman finished fitting the plutonium and carried the block to the tube opening. He tried it, 
removed a slight irregularity with his torch, and then said quietly, Finish, sir. Rip took over. He slid the thorium-plutonium block into the tube, took a rocket head from Santos, and used it to push the block in farther. When the rocket head was about four inches inside the tube, its wires trailing out, Rip called Kemp. At his direction, the torchman sliced a thin slot up the face of the crystal. Rip fitted the wires into it and held them in place with a small wedge of thorium. Kemp cut a plug and fitted it into the hole and welded the seams closed. The tube was sealed. When electric current fired the rocket head, the thorium carrying the plutonium wedge would be driven forward to meet the wedge at the back, and unless Rip had miscalculated the mass of the two pieces, they would have their nuclear blast. Rip surveyed the crystal with some anxiety. It looked right. Domenico already had rigged the timer from the atomic bomb. He connected the wires and looked at Rip. Do I say this, sir? Load the communicator, the extra bomb parts, rocket launcher, and rockets, the cutting equipment, my instruments, and the tubes of fuel. Leave everything else in the cave. The planeteers ran to obey. Rip waited until the landing boat was nearly loaded, then told Domenico to set the timer for five minutes. He wondered how they would explode the second charge since they only had one timer left, and then he forgot about it. Time enough to worry about that when he faced that problem. I'll take the snapper boat, he stated. Santos in the gunner's seat, Koa in charge of the landing boat. Doused, you pilot. Let's show some exhaust here. He fitted himself into the tight pilot seat of the snapper boat while Santos climbed in behind. Then handling controls with the skill of long practice, he lifted the tiny fighting rocket above the asteroid and waited for the landing boat. When it joined up, Rip led the way to safety. As he cut his exhaust to wait for the explosion, he sighted past the snapper boat's nose to the asteroid. He was moving, and the direction of his movement told him the sun was already pulling. Its pull was strong, too. He cut his jets back on, just to hold position, and saw Douse do the same. Another few miles toward the sun, and the landing boats wouldn't have the power to get away from Saul's gravity. A few miles beyond that, and even the powerful little snapper boat will be caught. Below, the timer reached zero. A mighty fan of fire shot into space. The asteroid shuddered from the blast, then swerved gradually, picking up speed as well as new direction. Rip swallowed hard. Now they were committed. They would reach a new perihelion far beyond the limits of safety. P for perihelion and P for peril. In this case, they were the same thing. Chapter 14 Between Two Fires Back on the asteroid, the planeteers started laying out the second atomic charge. Rip selected the spot, found a nearby crystal that would serve to house the bomb, and Kemp started cutting. The planeteers knew what to do now. The work went rapidly, and Rip kept an eye on the chronometer. According to the message from TerraBase, he had about 15 minutes before the Consops cruiser arrived. We have one advantage we didn't have back at the asteroid belt, he remarked to Koa. Back there, they could have landed anywhere on the rock. Now they have to stick to the dark side. Snapper boats could last on the sun side, but men in ordinary spacesuits couldn't. That's good, Koa agreed. We have only one side to defend. Why don't we put the rocket launcher right in the middle of the dark side? Go ahead, and have all men check their pistols and knives. 
We don't know what's likely to happen when the Connie flames in. Rip walked over to the communicator and plugged his suit into the circuit. This is the asteroid calling TerraBase over. This is TerraBase. Go ahead, Foster. How you doing? If you need anything cooked, send it to us, Rip replied. We have enough heat to cook anything, including tungsten alloy. He explained briefly what action they had taken. A new voice came on the communicator. Foster, this is Colonel Stevens. Rip responded swiftly. Yes, sir. Stevens was the top planeteer, commanding officer of all the special order squadrons. We piped this circuit into every channel in the system, the colonel said. Every planeteer in the squadrons is listening, rooting for you. Is there anything we can do? Yes, sir, Rip replied. Do you know if TerraBase has plotted our course this far? There was a brief silence, then the colonel answered, Yes, Foster. We have a complete track from the time you started on the Terra screens, about halfway between the orbits of Mars and Earth. Did you just get our change of direction? Yes, we're following you on the screens. Then, sir, I'd appreciate if you put the calculators to work and make a time-distance plot for the next few hours. The blast we're saving to push back to safety is about three kilotons. Let us know the last moment when we can fire and get free of Saul's gravity. You'll have it within 15 minutes. Anything else, Foster? Nothing else I can think of, sir. Good luck, then. We'll be standing by. Yes, sir. Foster out. Rip disconnected and turned up his helmet communicator, repeating the conversation to his men. Koa came and stood beside him. Lieutenant, how do we set off this next charge? Well, there was only one way. When the time came to blast, they would be too close to the sun to take to the boats. The blast had to be set off from the asteroid. Well, we'll get underground as far away from the bomb as we can, Rip said. He surveyed the dark side, which was growing rapidly less dark. I think the second crater will do. Kemp can swear it off on the side toward the blast to give us a vertical wall to hide behind. Koa looked doubtfully. There's plenty of radiation left in those holes, sir. Rip grinned mirthlessly. Radiation is the least of our problems, Koa. I'd rather get an overdose of gamma than get blasted into space. A yell rang into his helmet. Here comes the Connie! Rip looked up startled. The Consop's cruiser passed directly overhead, about ten miles away. It was decelerating rapidly. Rip wondered why they hadn't spotted it earlier and realized the Connie had come from the direction of the hot side. The enemy cruiser was probably the same one that had attacked them before. He must have lain in wait for days, keeping between the sun and Terra. That way the screens wouldn't pick him up, since only a few observatories scan the sun regularly. To the observatories, the cruiser would have been only a tiny speck, too small to be noticed. Or if they had noticed, the astronomers probably would have decided it was just a very tiny sunspot. The planeteers worked with increased speed. Kemp welded the final plug into place, then hurried to the crater from which they would set off the charge. Domenico and Doust connected the wires from the rocket head to a reel of wire and rolled it toward the crater. Nunez got a hand-driven dynamo from the supplies and tested it for use in setting off the charge. Santos stood by the rocket launcher, with Peterson ready to put another rack of rockets into the device when necessary. Rip and Koa watched the Connie cruiser. It decelerated to a stop for a brief second, then started moving again, with no jets showing. That's the sun pulling them in, Rip said exultantly. They'll have to keep blasting to maintain position. 
The consop's commander didn't wait to trim the ship against the sun's drag. His airlocks opened, clearly visible to Rip and Koa because that side of the cruiser was brilliant with sunlight. Ten snapper boats sped forth. Rip was certain now that this was the enemy cruiser they had fought off back in the asteroid belt. Two Connie snapper boats had been destroyed in that clash, which explained why the commander was sending only ten boats instead of the full quota of twelve. The squadron instantly formed a V, like a strange space ladder made up of globes. The sun's gravity pulled at them, dragging them off course. Rip watched as flames poured from their stern tubes. They were firing full speed ahead, but the drag of the sun distorted their line of flight into a great arc. Rip saw the strategy instantly. The Connie commander knew the situation exactly, and he was staking everything in one great gamble, sending his snapper boats to land on the asteroid, to crash land if necessary. The asteroid was so close to the sun that even the powerful fighting rockets would use most of their fuel to simply combat the gravity. All hands stand by to repel Connie's! Rip shouted, and he drew his pistol. He looked into the magazine and saw he had a full clip, and then charged up the weapon. Santos was crouching over the rocket launcher, his space gloves working rapidly as he kept the rockets pointed at the enemy. Rip called, Santos, fire at will! The planeteers formed a skirmish line, which pivoted on the launcher. Only Kemp remained at work, his torch flaring, slicing through the thorium as he prepared their firing position. The atomic charge was ready. The wires had been laid up to the rim of the crater in which Kemp worked, and the dynamo was attached. Rip was everywhere, checking on the launcher, on Kemp, on the pistols of his men, and Santos hunched over his illuminated sight to watch the Connie snapper boats draw nearer. Here we go, the Filipino corporal muttered. He pressed the trigger. The first rocket sped outward in a sweeping curve, and for a moment, Rip opened his mouth to yell at Santos. The sun's gravity affected the attack rockets, too. Then he saw the corporal had allowed for the sun's pull. The rocket curved into the squadron of oncoming boats, and they all tried to dodge at once. Two of them met in a sideways crash. Then a third staggered as its stern globe flared and exploded. Santos had scored a hit. Rip called, Good shooting. The corporal's reply was rueful. Sir, that wasn't the one I was aiming for. The sun's pull is worse than I figured. The damaged snapper boat instantly blasted from its nose tube and decelerated and went into reverse, flipping through space crabwise as it tried to regain the safety of the cruiser. The two boats that had crashed while trying to dodge were blasting in great spurts of flame, following the example of their damaged companion. Seven left, Rip called, and another rocket flashed on its way. He followed its trail as it curved away from the asteroid and into the squadron. Its proximity fuse detonated in the exhaust of a Connie boat, blowing the tube out of position. The boat yawed wildly, cut its stern tubes, and blasted to a stop from the bow tube. Then it, too, started backwards toward the cruiser. Six left. Flame blossomed a few yards from Rip. He was picked up bodily and flung into space, whirling end over end. Koa's voice rang in his helmet. Watch out! The firing back! Rip tugged frantically at an air bottle in his belt. He pulled it out and used it to whirl him upright again. Then its air blast drove him back to the surface of the asteroid. Sweat poured from his forehead, and the suit ventilator whined as it worked to pick up the extra moisture. Great cosmos, that was close. Koa called. Are you all right, sir? 
I'm fine. Santos fired again, twice in rapid succession. The two Connie snapper boats scattered as the proximity fuses produced flowers of fire among them. Two near misses, but they threw the enemy off course. Rip watched tensely as the boats fought to regain their course. He knew asteroid cruiser and boats were speeding toward the sun at close to 50 miles a second, and the drag was getting terrific. The Connies knew it too. There was an exultant yell from the planeteers as two of the boats gave up and turned back, using full power to regain the safety of the mothership. Four left, and they were getting close. Santos scored a direct hit on the nose of the nearest one, but its momentum drove it within a few yards of the asteroid. Five spacesuited figures erupted from it, holding hand propulsion units, tubes of rocket fuel used for hand combat in empty space. The Connies lit off their propulsion tubes and drove feet first for the asteroid. The planeteers estimated where the enemy would land and were there waiting with pointed handguns. The Connies had their hands over their heads holding the propulsion tubes. They took one look at the gleaming planeteer guns and their hands stayed upright. The planeteers lashed the Connies' hands behind them with their own safety lines, and at Rip's orders, dumped all but one of them into the crater where Kemp was just finishing. Three snapper boats remained. Rip watched, holding tightly to the arm of the Connie he had kept at his side. The man wore the insignia of an officer. The remaining snapper boats were going to make it. Santos threw rockets among them and scored hits, but the boats kept coming. The Connies were too far away from the cruiser to return, and they knew it. Getting to the asteroid was their only chance. Rip called, Santos, cease fire. Set the launcher for ground level. Let them land, but don't fire until I give the word. He hoped his plan would work. Experience back in the asteroid belt had told him something about the Connies. He put his helmet against his prisoners for direct communication. You speak English? The man shouted back. Yes! Good. We're going to let your friends land. As soon as they do, I want you to yell to them. Say we have assault rockets trained on them. Tell them to surrender or they'll be killed in their tracks. Do you have that? The Connie replied. Suppose I refuse. Rip put his space knife against the man's stomach. Then we'll get them with the rockets. But you won't care because you won't know it. The truth was Santos couldn't hope to get them all with his rockets. They might overcome the Connies in hand-to-hand fighting, but there would be a cost to pay in planeteer casualties. Rip hoped the Connie wouldn't call his bluff, because that's all it was. He wouldn't use a space knife on an unarmed prisoner. The Connie didn't know that. In Rip's place, he would have had no compunction about using the knife. So instead of calling Rip's bluff, he agreed. The snapper boats blew their front tubes, decelerating, and crashed down to the asteroid in a roar of exhaust flames, sending the planeteers running out of the way. Rip thrust harder with his space knife and yelled, Tell them! The Connie officer nodded. Turn up my communicator! Rip turned it on full and the Connie barked quick instructions. The exhaust died and five men filed out of each boat with their hands held high. Rip blew a drop of perspiration from the tip of his nose. Empty space. It was a good thing Connie morale was bad. The enemy's willingness to surrender had saved them a costly fight. The planeteers rounded up the prisoners and secured them while Rip took an anxious look at the communicator. It was about time he heard from TerraBase. The light was glowing. For all he knew, it might have been glowing for many minutes. He plugged into the circuit. This is Foster on the asteroid. 
TerraBase to Foster. Listen, you will reach optimal position on the time distance curve at 23.06. Repeat back, 23.06. Got it. We'll reach optimum position at 23.06. He looked at his chronometer and his pulse stopped. It was 22.58. They had just eight minutes before the sun caught them forever, atomic blast or not. And the Connie cruiser was still overhead, with no friendly cruisers in sight. He looked up, white-faced. Not only was the Connie still there, but its main airlock was sliding open to disclose a new danger. In the opening, ready to launch, an assault boat waited. The assault boats were something only the Connies used. They were about four times the size of a snapper boat, less maneuverable, but more powerful. They carried 20 men and a pair of guided missiles with atomic warheads.